you're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. This episode is sponsored by Audible. Get your free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial over at audibletrial.com slash thisnazlife. They've got over 180,000 titles to choose from for all your devices. Today's role model episode features Reverend Albert Hung, District Superintendent of Northern California District Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for all you do for young pastors, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bolojack, and I'm here with my guest, Albert Hung. He's the DS at Northern California District Church of the Nazarene. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Good to be here. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Well, I didn't grow up uh, in the church at all. Uh, I, Because I didn't grow up in a Christian family. Uh, my parents were immigrants from Taiwan. I was born in Ohio. Uh, but then when I was just a kid, we moved to Canada, and I grew up near the Toronto uh, area. And my parents uh, were culturally Buddhist, but really not really practicing or anything. So I didn't really have much of a faith background at all. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, my only exposure to the church really was uh, going to like some kind of, I, it might have been a VBS. I didn't know what that term was back then, but some kind of summer program. And it was free babysitting in the summer. <laughs> And they gave out uh, cupcakes, and that's all I remember is that was the only time in my childhood that I got to eat ch- chocolate cupcakes. Didn't oh. remember anything about Jesus or anything. I think there was a flannel graph. I didn't know they were called that back then. But, right. Um, and, and so I didn't grow up in the church, and going to um, uh, college, um, there was a couple of people that tried to witness to me, um, which I didn't take to very well. I thought the, you know, they were kind of pushy, to be honest. Mm. Um, but I went to, uh, I studied theater, and uh, I was running a small theater company in Toronto, uh, doing experimental uh, plays and things like that. And there was a, um, a, a period of a couple of months where I wasn't doing any shows. Mm. And my mother said, uh, there's no money in theater. Uh, <laughs> and what you want to do is you want to try try and find funding sources. And my mother at the time said, hey, there's a bunch of Asian-American uh, artists, young people that uh, have secular careers or other plans um, in the U.S., but then they, they have a second career in Taiwan as, as uh, singers and celebrities, and maybe you could do something like that. And so she gave me a CD of a uh, Taiwanese boy band called the L.A. Boys. <laughs> And I think they were med students uh, here in SoCal. Wow. Uh, and But they had these other careers in Taiwan as like singers. So they would go over in the summer, tour around, make lots of money, and they'd come back. And nobody knew who they were here. They could go about their regular lives. And uh, I thought, well, that's that would be cool. I could Maybe I could make money and put it back into my theater company. And uh, my mom gave me a CD and played it. I said, well, this isn't very good. I could do this. Because uh, I had... <laughs> Uh, was into music and mm-hmm. uh, so I, I decided I would take a uh, leave of absence from my theater company and go to Taiwan and try to get a career start a career as a singer Wow um, made a demo went to Taiwan started shopping it around to different record labels and 
I said, my name is Albert, and I would like to be a pop singer, please. And uh, <laughs> that was, you know, they were, they were like, who are you? And I was 24 at the time, which is really old if you want to start a career in the pop music industry. Mm. Um, but they said, you know, um, you have some you have some talent. Maybe you should stick around. And so I I stayed, and um, that I, I only meant to go for two months. I ended up staying for like six years. Oh wow! And eventually uh, landed a contract, a recording contract with um, uh, Sony Music. What what had happened was I started going to labels, and they said, um, "Well, you know, your your singing is just kind of okay, but do you write music?" Mm. And I lied. I said, "Yes, yes, I write music." <laughs> And, uh, and they said, well, good. Cause most of our artists don't. So I, I quickly went away and I learned how to write music and I started, uh, uh, composing uh, pop music for, for different artists there. And eventually that, that got me a record contract on my own. Uh, but somewhere along the line, I started to lose myself. Mm. Um, it, the entertainment business is very uh, dark. Yeah. A lot, there's a lot of depression. There's a dysfunction, addiction, mm. Uh, it's generally a pretty miserable place to be. Um, and all of the, I've met a lot of celebrities, um, wealthy, famous people. And I noticed that under the spotlight, they were, they were happy and they were outgoing. But then once the show was over and you're with them backstage, a lot of times they were very withdrawn and they, and they didn't look happy at all. Mm. And, uh, I just saw this over and over again, and, and I started to really look at people differently um, in the sense that I would look at what, what they could do for my career, and I started to become pretty self-absorbed and selfish. Mm. You know, I never got into the drug scene or things like that, but uh, one, one time I was driving to a, a concert with, uh, with my agent, and I turned to him, and, uh, and I just said, you know what, like, I know you've worked with many people over many years. Have you ever met anybody who's happy? And he was quiet for a good five minutes. Mm. And, uh, you know, he said, you know, Albert, I, I can't think of a single one. Oh, wow. And it was such a pivotal moment in my life. I can remember exactly where I was, what we were doing, what the weather was like. It's just one of those moments that, that is crystallized in your memory. Mm. And I just thought, I, I have to get out of this business. I don't even know what I'm doing here anymore. Yeah. Um, and around that time, I met my wife, uh, Christine, on the internet, and she was living in Korea, and I was in Taiwan. Uh, and we met on a, a website called Match.com, <laughs> and this was before it was socially acceptable to meet people on the internet. But anyways, <laughs> we were just, uh, I just wanted to, someone to talk to. I didn't think I'd ever, I wasn't really looking to date anybody, I didn't, uh, you know, she, and she lived in a different country. I didn't even know what she looked like. But we, we just hit it off, um, and we just started writing to each other, and, and I would just pour out what was going on in my life, and mm. she would listen, and uh, I just said, I don't like who I am. I don't like where my life is going, and she said, well, you ever thought about Jesus? And she comes from a long line of, uh, you know, there's a lot of pastors and church elders in her family, and yeah. uh, and at that point, I was just... I was open, like I was ready to try anything. And, uh, and she just very, just gently started to introduce me to, to Jesus. Mm. Um, and I just realized that this was what I had been looking for my whole life, you know, the way that uh, the gospel was presented to me in a way that I could finally understand and was ready for. 
So um, we eventually met. Um, I was very actively searching. Uh, at that time, I was going to an English-speaking uh, Presbyterian church in Taiwan. That was my first church. Mm. And we uh, we eventually fell in love. Uh, I became a Christian and got married. Uh, I left the music business and started working as a missionary in Taiwan uh, for a media organization. I hosted a TV show and uh, did some uh, uh, script consulting. And um, I-, I worked with them for a couple of years. Now, this organization... Uh, is a media ministry that produces English TV shows, radio radio shows, magazines uh, as a means. To, it's called Overseas Radio and Television. Mm. And they do that as a means of uh, opening access to uh, different schools and organizations uh, to be able to share uh, Christ, to be able to share the gospel. But mm. they, they do it by um, teaching English. Wow. And so I hosted a TV show with them for a couple of years. The dean of theology uh, at Azusa Pacific University at the time, Kevin Minoya, and he said, you know, if you want to serve God, you need to be equipped. Mm. And just something struck me at that time where I thought, yes, you know, I've n- I didn't grow up in the church, uh, but I feel called to serve God, and I don't know a whole lot, you know, so, um, so we just felt led to leave Taiwan at that time, and Christine and I came to the U.S. Mm. She was eight months pregnant with our first uh, child at the time. Oh wow! And um, we, uh, uh, so I enrolled in seminary, and on the first day of class, I just asked, you know, my uh, my professor in the class, does anybody know of any church jobs around? Uh, and the professor was a Nazarene pastor. At uh, Monterey Park Trinity Church of the Nazarene here in the uh, LA district. Oh wow! And um, he said, uh, he said, great. Well, uh, you know, if you, you you know have a music background, we need a worship pastor. Would you consider doing that? And so that was my first um, introduction into paid ministry uh, as a vocation. Mm. Um, and, and that is how I I managed to find the Church of the Nazarene. <laughs> it was a very kind of convoluted path. And I didn't even know what a Nazarene was at that time. Right. I came home and I said, Hey, honey, I've been offered a job at the church of the Nazarene. She says, what's the church of the Nazarene? And <laughs> she had been a Christian for, for her whole life. Right. And she had to look it up because we weren't sure if this was a cult or something like that. Um, and man, I'm just, it, it's been the best thing. I'm so mm. glad that this is the denomination that the Lord led us to. Uh, and it was kind of a happy accident because I had, I had no idea what a Nazarene was. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. <laughs> so you're at Monterey Park Trinity Church of the Nazarene. Kind of talk to me about your journey from from there to where you are now. Yeah. Uh, so I started out as the as a part time uh, worship pastor at Trinity mm-hmm. uh, while I was going to uh, to school, and I started out with a master's of ministry management because I thought that I my my original thought was to uh, start a nonprofit um, children's entertainment or education company, kind of like VeggieTales, um, but maybe with live action, like, I don't know, Sesame Street, like the Christian version of Sesame Street, something like that. Okay. Uh, because I, ha- I also have a, a, an education degree mm. and had trained to be a teacher. 
So I thought I could bring my education experience, my drama, my music, television experience, kind of bring all that together. I can use that to serve the Lord. Um, And and so I enrolled in ministry management so I could learn kind of the, first of all, all the theology and and, uh, Bible classes. uh, I needed all of that. But then also there were some MBA courses involved. And so I finished that. Um, But partway through the process, uh, I went to a a um, conference at Saddleback Church, and mm. at that time I, I had never been to any kind of Christian conference before. And there was a time ta- for a short period I was kind of a conference junkie because I was just soaking in everything that I could uh, learn. But I was uh, man, I, I I heard I had never seen a megachurch pastor speak before, but something about that in that point in my formation, it was exactly what I needed to hear because Rick Warren. Um, talked about why he became a pastor mm. and he said when he was trying to figure out what to do with his life he thought what is the most strategic thing that i could do that have the maximum kingdom in- impact and it was to be a, a local pastor mm. and that just stuck with me i thought maybe there's something i could do that would have uh, a, a bigger impact and, and and just touch people in a more powerful way make use of my gifts yeah um uh, because I had no ecclesiology uh, mm. before that. I didn't know really what the church was. And, and so as my ecclesiology began to develop and I understood why the local church really is God's chosen instrument and vehicle to to uh, advance the kingdom, I I decided that I, I would go into ministry. And I But I'd already finished all my other courses for the Master's in Ministry Management. And so I just transferred all of that into an MDiv and, st- and stayed for another year. Oh, wow. And uh, and just felt that that was what I was called to do. Mm. Now, in be- during this whole process, uh, Trinity, uh, the, the pastor who hired me, um, left the church within a year of me going, uh, become, coming on staff. And there was no, nobody, there was no other staff people. So it was just, mm. Uh, me and uh, maybe one or two other uh, part-time people, and they, so they turned to me and they said, "Well, would you would you lead us through the interim?" So I did that for a, f- a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, we had another pastor come in. He stayed for uh, two years, um, and then he resigned. And and by that time, I was done school. And mm-hmm. they said, "Would you be interested in leading the church?" And I, Christine and I thought that we would be going back overseas as missionaries, or perhaps go back up to Canada to plant a church uh, near where my parents are. Um, but we just realized, you know, the world has come to Los Angeles. Mm. This is a fantastic place to be a missionary. We loved the people in our church. Mm. We thought we had a very good idea of what they needed to do next. Um, mm. And and so we, we just thought, you know, this is great. We have a great opportunity to really um, do some wonderful work with these people. And, and we love them so much. So we stayed. Mm. Uh, but in the middle of that... Um, Again, there are a number of things happening concurrently during this time. One of them was at at APU. uh, Also, I was working three jobs and going to uh, full-time seminary, and uh, we were raising a family. You know, by this time we had another kid and then another one, and uh, so uh, here we are. And and my other two jobs at APU. One, I was uh, an uh, adjunct instructor Mm. um, working with international students, but I was also uh, the international chaplain for the school. Oh wow! So my job was to create uh, some kind of meaningful chapel experience, worship experience for uh, students from about thirty different countries mm. all over the world. 
And you don't have to be a Christian to go to APU, but you need to go to chapel three times a week. Um, So you have these students from all over the world, and English is not their first language, and they're not necessarily Christian. Um, And they're sitting in these chapel services. The the big chapel services, main chapel services, were, you know, 4,000 students in a dark auditorium. And it was very much like what you would expect in a typical American megachurch. You have Mm. uh, loud, contemporary music, and then somebody comes up and gives a message. And then everybody would just leave and go to their classes. So what Mm. what often happened was that our, our internationals couldn't really follow or relate. They didn't have the background. Sometimes they would stay in the back of the um, auditorium and, and just do their homework and, and, and so forth. Mm. So I thought, well, if we're going to create chapel services for uh, internationals, then we have to be a family because that's when you're coming from overseas, that's what you need. You, you need a community and you often come from a, a communal culture. Yeah. So I thought the best thing to do is to take it, all the best things about church and just do that with the students uh, because 20, a 20 minute message from me is completely insufficient to disciple um, these people uh, to, to trust in Jesus and then to grow to maturity in their faith. And the people that have the best access to their lives are their peers. Yeah. Um, so basically we planted a church kind of under the radar at the, at the school. Mm. So I shortened my message and we include, we started doing small groups within the chapel service where so the students could engage with what we had talked about afterwards. Mm. Um, and we attracted a lot of American students that wanted to engage cross-culturally. We're thinking about being missionaries one day. Uh, a lot of missionary kids from overseas that mm. were studying at APU came, came around. So uh, what we call uh, TCKs or third culture kids, they came. It was the di- most diverse gathering that you would see during the week at the school on a regular basis. And uh, we outgrew our spaces a couple of times, and the um, uh, it began to grow. We outgrew one space, and then another. At one point, we met in the courtyard, an outdoor courtyard, right underneath the president's office. <laughs> and so, um, so, so he would look out his window uh, and uh, and come down sometimes and and join us uh, for worship. And and he would often tell people like, "This is like one of the best kept secrets on campus." And it, mm. It's amazing. We would sing in all these different languages. Actually, you know, a general assembly that we just had. Remember that there was a moment on Saturday night that was just phenomenal. Man, yeah. it, it was like being in the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And you had these multiple. That's what it was like for us all the time. You know, we would sing songs in French and Swahili and uh, Mandarin, and it was it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if I'll ever be in that kind of community again. It was just a very special time. But I say all that because, number one, I, I gravitate towards multicultural context. I love working with students. Um, I love um, anything that is is innovative and we're trying to reach um, unreached people. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and I took that with me into Trinity, where I'm pastoring now. Hmm. So historically, Trinity is a uh, – we have a very special place in our denomination's history. Um and by, and I should clarify that I am the district superintendent in uh, NorCal, and I just started that a couple months ago. But for the past uh, 14 years, we've been at Trinity Church, and I've been the lead pastor there for the past 10. Oh, wow. Uh, and um, the trans- our church has undergone this huge transformation. Uh, and so I, I'm in the midst of transitioning out of that role 
into the fully transitioning into the NorCal uh, DS role. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Trinity was the first mission to the Chinese population in the history of the Church of the Nazarene. So way back in the late 1920s, there were a group of missionaries from uh, L.A. First Church, uh, which is the mother church, Venice Brzee's church. And he, uh, th- th- uh, there were some missionaries that would go around the community. They would round up all the Chinese immigrant kids uh, and bring them to church and say, hey, do you want to do, do a, a Sunday school Bible study? And I'm sure the parents were happy to have their kids like learn English yeah. and uh, be out of their hair for a couple of hours, mm-hmm. learn good mm-hmm. morals, that kind of thing. So they were all OK with it, even though they weren't necessarily Christian. So you look at all these old pictures back then, and it's it's a whole bunch of like little Chinese kids, <laughs> um, and a few tall white missionaries, <laughs> and those are the beginnings of the church. And so over time, they uh, kids grew older. They formed a congregation. Uh, they moved to the the uh, basement of a local Chinese market, and then they wow. bought a house. And so over the years, uh, in ni- in the nineteen sixties, they finally incorporated. Oh, sorry, 1950. They finally incorporated as a church. They became First Chinese Church of the Nazarene. And, uh, and so by the time that Christine and I, my wife uh, and, and I got there uh, in 2003, the church was made up of third, fourth generation descendants, mostly English speaking, uh, of a lot of those original people. And some oh, of them wow. were still around. So it's it really neat. But the church was made up of three big families, uh, the Wong clan, the Ng clan, and the Liu clan. <laughs> and they were extremely stable, very loving, um, because it was it was a family gathering every week, you know. And even though they moved out of the area, people would commute in. But super stable, uh, very loving, very faithful, but largely, honestly, invisible to the community. Mm. Uh, th- there wasn't much of a local presence. Yeah. And it's hard to break into a community that's so tight knit when you're a newcomer. Mm. So we get you know one or two families a year, and we just kind of stay stable. But I I knew um, going into this, I could see that if the church did not change its focus, that eventually it would dwindle. It might not happen for twenty thirty years, but eventually that's what would happen. Right. And uh, we just felt you know the local church needs to needs to serve the local community and needs to look like the local community. So we began a journey to become, to transition to reflect the demographics of where we live. Mm. And Monterey Park is about 30% or sorry, 60% uh, Asian American, mostly Chinese American, about 30% Latino and about 10% other or Hispanic Latino and 10% other. And so we started diversifying our staff, Mm. intentionally changed up some of the power structures within the church to provide space for new leadership to emerge. And we just said, we're going to start engaging the, the people right right where we live. And over the years, um, that has gradually shifted. We started adding more diversity in our staff. And uh, now uh, we pretty much look like our community. I would say about 30% of our congregation is now Hispanic, Latino. Mm. And out of the, the, the uh, I disciple a group of about eight to 10 guys uh, every year um, for a one-year cohort. And this past year, like seven, six or seven of my guys were uh, were of Hispanic uh, origin. Wow! And so, uh, I have that's been awesome. I love that about our church. Uh, that, and so, that came again came out of my experience as a 
as the international chaplain at APU, that just has, has influenced how I see the body of Christ and, and what churches can, can be uh, in their communities. Hmm. What was the, what would you say was the hardest part of nurturing that diversity? I think the hardest part of nurturing that uh, diversity was, was number one, overcoming some of the pushback that I got from our, our members who didn't think that that was going to happen. Mm. Uh, they just said, well, people just always gravitate to their own groups. And I mean, go ahead and try it, but I just, I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. You know, so, so I think as leaders, we often need to be ready to spend a lot of leadership capital mm. and do a lot of vision casting. It's, it's, it's long, difficult work to turn around an existing culture. Mm. That's kind of how I'm wired as a, as a leader. I'm less of a uh, like a church planter. I think I more specialize in church turnaround. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I haven't planted a church before, so sure. it's always the first time. Um, but I think that's it's just as a leader being ready for the long haul and knowing that you may not get quick results, but if you're just faithfully working and planting and changing you know, over time, that you see that um, finding people like leaders to to serve with us who have those cross-cultural competencies, that was difficult to do. Yeah. But our, our, one of our first um, important hires was uh, Johnny Cabrera, who's uh, Mexican-American, but he's married to a Korean-American, a Korean woman, uh, immigrant from, uh, from Korea, and, and they're an awesome ministry couple. But Johnny had also, has, had also done some missions in Taiwan, and so he had those, um, those competencies that was really helpful. If you have a diverse leadership team and they, they look like the people you want to reach, then that, that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. So kind of tell me the story of how you ended up um, being a DS. What was the journey of that like? Um, yeah. Uh, so last year, about a, about a year and a half ago, uh, Trinity had reached a point where we couldn't grow uh, much further beyond our own facility because of their space limitations it was not a very big campus and mm. on Sundays every room was filled we had no ro- no more room for any more kids classes any more adult classes right every space was being used for worship we had an English congregation and a Chinese congregation that were meeting we had already tried going to two services for the English service but it was just difficult because that that's not really the the, the norm for us and uh, uh, our community yeah. It's just hard to get momentum going. Um, so we thought, well, what are our options? Maybe we could move to another, uh, a bigger campus, maybe to a local high school, maybe a different city. But the more we thought about it, the more we just felt, no, the Lord planted us here in this area for a reason, and we don't want to lose that footprint. Uh, we worked years to build those relationships, and I think it would be tough. Uh, there was another church on our district in Roland Heights, a Nazarene church, that was looking for a new pastor and uh the church had um had dwindled somewhat over the years due to a a number of different factors but uh, the english congregation was extremely faithful and provided most of the uh, funding for the church and they also had a filipino congregation a spanish congregation and a chinese congregation Uh, so there are these four groups uh, in this church uh, the English providing most of the finances, and there were um, perhaps maybe 30 to 35 people attending on Sundays and no kids. 
So oh, it was wow. a very much an aging congregation mm. uh, that that had been very faithful, but was but was kind of in a kind of stuck. Um, and I think they realized that if they just called a new pastor in, it it, it would be really difficult to turn things around uh, because of their context. What they really needed was uh, an influx of people to come in, kind of all at once, mm. to help revitalize the church. Um, so we thought, well, instead of finding a bigger space, maybe we can send some of our people away um, on, on mission. Wow. And we'd already been talking about eventually planting or something to kind of alleviate the crowding and, and, and bring in an opportunity for some new missional life. Mm. So we talked to our DS, um, and, and he, he and I uh, discussed the idea of becoming a multi-site church. What if we sent like 35, 40 of our leaders over to that campus to help uh, get things going again. Mm. And we would adopt them. We would uh, transplant all the, whatever is healthy, whatever was good about our church, we would transplant those uh, those values, the, the mission, the methods to the other campus and become one church in two locations. Mm. And so uh, we spent a lot of time engaging the board um, at, uh, at uh, in the Roland Heights Church and there was some initial reservation because this hadn't been done. Like, what are you taking over our church? What what does this mean? But the more that they they saw our hearts and what we really wanted, which was we just we just want to make disciples in a in a wider um, harvest field, a larger mission field, and we just want to see people come to life in Christ. And and we feel that that by working together we can achieve more. Mm. So once that once they understood, they embraced it. But when we had the vote um, in uh, April of 2016, it passed by 98 percent on both sides. It was just overwhelming support for this idea. Wow. Uh, and so after that, we spent the last year just uh, we sent a group of people over. It's been an amazing journey. I'm just fantastic. It's been so, so good, Brett. I'm so mm. encouraged. Um they say that when you do a, a merger like this, you should be prepared to uh, take a financial hit in the first year of maybe somewhere in the vicinity of a hundred thousand dollars. And mm. we said, well, that's not going to happen to us. We're, we're, you know, we're going to be just fine. But sure enough, you know, every month we were in the red, like ten thousand dollars, nine thousand mm. dollars, and by the time we hit Christmas time, we were we were in the hole about a hundred thousand dollars. Now we had the reserves to cover that, and we knew. That, that was going to be the, the case. Um, but what happened in December was we always do a year-end giving campaign just to say, hey, you know, this is a, a time to really uh, think about generosity and support the work that we're doing. And we share about uh, all the progress that we've made that year. Yeah. And in one month, we had a, I mean, blew away every record we've ever had before. We, we raised an extra $100,000 just in one month mm. in um December and wiped out all that red ink for the year. And this, mm. that, that was for us a real sense of affirmation that God was was honoring um, our desire to just walk in faith. So as we continue to develop this multi-site model and strengthen all the, all six of our congregations, we have the two English, two Chinese, we have a Spanish, we have a Filipino congregation. Mm. And really thinking as one coming under one umbrella as a staff, um, Things were great. Christine and I were thinking, okay, we're gonna we're gonna move closer to our new campus, and so we put in an offer on a house, uh, and it was accepted, and we're getting ready. To, we're all excited, 
And then three days before we were closing escrow in this home, I get a call from uh, uh, Bob Brooks, our um, uh, uh, coordinator, director for the USA-Canada region. Mm. And he he said, the Northern California district um, is looking for a new superintendent. And uh, they've been searching for, for months and praying about this. And we, they feel that the Lord has led them to you. Wow. Yeah. Uh, would you allow your name to go forward for a vote in three weeks at our, at their district assembly? Oh, wow. And I said, what? <laughs> this is, I had no idea any of this was going on. And like I said, we're three days away from closing escrow on a house. Ugh. We're in, intending to plant ourselves. You know, I did not, I thought we were going to be at this church. I, was, I thought we'd be one of those pastors that pastoral families that, stay with one church their entire career. Like we were yeah. thinking we're going to invest 30 years in this place because we mm. had such momentum and, and morale is so high. We're like mm. so excited. We got the kids in, you know, my, Christine homeschooled the kids for many years and, and she finally said, okay, uh, she, Christine became the campus pastor in our Roland Heights side. Mm. The kids are, are now established in school. A public school finally made, made that decision. We're all ready to settle. And then I get this phone call and, um, I said, uh, w- man, what an incredible honor, but if I were to pick one time in the last 14 years of ministry at this church, it'd be the absolute worst time for me to leave. Like, this would be that time. Yeah. Um, and I said, no, I, I, I'm sorry. Like, I, I don't think we could do this. And um, so Dr. Broadbrook said, well, would you at least um, be willing to, to have a conversation with the NorCal uh, district advisory committee, and mm. I said, "Well, of co- you know, sure, of course." And if this is of the Lord, and we we have to at least talk. Yeah. Know? So Christine and I um, uh, let our board know that this was happening. I really believe in transparency. We didn't want to like sneak around behind anybody's back. They said, "Hey, this is probably going to go nowhere, but just want you to know that they called us and they want to have a conversation. So we're going to fly up and yeah." Nothing's going to happen. We'll, we'll be back here. You know, this will all be behind us. <laughs> <laughs> so we go to NorCal and, and man, just something happened in that meeting mm. where we just felt the spirit saying, this is what I have for you. Don't, you need to pay close attention. Mm. And so as they began to describe the, the challenge of Northern California, which is so secular, so such a hard mission field, um, and they described the condition of the churches on the district and what was needed. Uh, we just started to feel like, man, I, I feel like the Lord is, has wired us uniquely to address this issue. Mm. But I, in the meantime, I'm having this dialogue with the Lord. And the people were so, so welcoming and so loving and, and so encouraging. And I said, man, I, these are great people, you know. Yeah. And so I, I started to feel, very, both of us started to feel really uncomfortable because we felt like, Lord, what are you, you I feel like you're, you're, you're prodding us in our spirits. Mm. But I said, in a, my ongoing dialogue with the Lord, uh, I said, Lord, I, if this is of you, you have to be very, you have to show me. Um, and, and I kind of put three fleeces before the Lord. I said, number one, Lord, if, if this is of you, you can't, we can't leave right away because if we were to leave Trinity like abruptly, it would be the worst like sense of betrayal to the church because we've asked them to follow us mm. and, and and take some big steps of faith 
and and asking them to trust us, you know, trust us. We think that the Lord is is leading us toward this merger and all and, and these amazing things. So so come on, let let's do this together. And then for me to say, oh, you know, sorry, we're leaving. I I think would have been so hurtful. And so I just said, Lord, don't send us right away. Yeah. And then the second thing was, I said, Lord, if this is of you, then confirm it through our local board, our local church board, and when we go back and share this with them. I'm not going to resign, but if they send us, mm. then we'll go. Yeah. Um, because we'll know it's it, it's of you. Mm. And then the third thing was, is Lord, if this is of you, then then let the vote um, pass by a, a such a strong majority that it's very clear. Mm. Let it pass by ninety percent or more. And I just put those things before the Lord. So at the end of this interview, um, they said, "Well, what do you think?" And I said, and I explained our situation and they said, well, what if we gave you some time mm. to transition out of your church in a healthy way, help guide them through this season? And I said, that would, that would change things for sure. That, that, that would help. And they said, well, how long do you need? I said, I don't know. It, it could be as like as short as six months. It could be as long as a couple of years. And they said, well, we'll give you two years. Wow. And I just about fell over. I was like, who does that? You know, like that's so unusual. Yeah. And I didn't think it, I don't think it's going to take that long, but they gave us that, that time. I think most likely we'll be moving up sometime next summer, but, uh, they, they were just really gracious. They said, no, we feel that you're that, you're that person and we'll find a way to make this work, even though you're, you may need to, to work remotely. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, fleece number one. And the second one was, uh, you know, we went back to our board and we explained to them and, uh, and they were you know, stunned that they were disoriented, like, well, what, what do we do? But we, we talked about it, we prayed about it. And by the end of like a three hour time of prayer and dialogue, every single one of the board members said, the Lord is sending you. Wow. And, uh, and we're not going to stand in the way of that. Mm. And so to their credit, and be very kingdom minded, I have such peace knowing that we're not abandoning our church, but that they're sending us. There's a huge difference, you know, and a lot of it is there. They felt like the, our our brothers and sisters in NorCal, they're family, mm. and they need Albert and Christine now, and so we're going to send them up there, even though we've never met them before. And that's man, this is like right out of the Book of Acts. It's mm. that sense of solidarity. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. So yeah, so they um, so they sent us, and then the third thing, the the vote passed by ninety three percent. Wow. On the first go around. And so it's very clear that this is what, you know, those the three things I asked for. That's what the Lord provided. Wow. Um, so uh, Dr. Eugenio Dwart called me. He was our, he's our uh, uh, presiding general, super, general superintendent. And he called, I couldn't go up there because like I said, we were moving, right? We had bought a new house. So he calls me on the day, right before the day before we're supposed to move is where their district assembly. So we couldn't go up and our whole house is in boxes and mm. it's a big mess. And he calls me up, and, I, and I'm wearing like a tank top and my shorts, and, you know, <laughs> uh, and, I'm, and I'm all grubby and sweaty. He says, congratulations, uh, you know, you, you've just been elected uh, district, district superintendent. Do you accept? And Christina and I just kind of sat on the floor, and he just was kind of blown away. And he said, yes, you know, yes, we'll go. Oh. Um, and then, and, and here's the crazy part of the story, Britt. Ten, ten minutes after that, I get another call. And this one is from our uh, our credit union that the church banks with, and uh, 
when we picked up the other campus in Roland Heights and adopted them, it came with a $650,000 debt on their property mm. from, from a, a, a building project from like 20 years ago that was never completed. And they just been carrying this debt for years as the congregation declined slowly. And so it was just this big weight on their backs. Mm. And uh, so we had to consider that when we adopted them. So because we were debt free, we're like our finances were in good shape. We didn't really want to jeopardize that. But then we just felt, nope, the Lord is calling us to this. It's going to work out. And so we even carry we took on this debt and. Ten minutes after I get the call from uh, Doctor, or sorry, Doctor Dwart, I get a call from the credit union, and they said, "Hey, um, we have some good news. We just received a, a check in the mail uh, from an anonymous donor for six hundred and fifty thousand dollars to pay off the mortgage on the property." Wow! And congratulations, you guys are debt free. <laughs> just uh, Christine and I were. It's it's like God was saying, if you needed a fourth sign, just in case you were in any doubt, mm. uh, Trinity is going to be fine. Uh, I I've got this. Don't worry. That's you know? amazing. Isn't that amazing? So I was just so the Lord has been very faithful just to because because we felt like man, how could we leave this church? Mm. And and how could this is the only church my kids have ever known. We had big plans. We just moved into this community in order to invest further. And we're like, Lord, why would you bring us to a new house if we had to leave? But now that we know we have some time to walk with this church a little longer, we're like, okay, now we get it. We understand. You know, yeah. it's, it's starting to become clear. Mm. But just along the way, all of our, all of our doubts. You know, so we're very certain that this is where God has called us you know, to NorCal. And we can already see uh, the Lord arranging circumstances in NorCal so that we can be effective there. Mm. And there's an amazing group of young clergy there. Um, there's an amazing group of intercultural pastors there. We've got pastors that have been on the district for many, many years and have tons of experience. Uh, but there's just, it's, I feel like NorCal, like we're sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> we have some amazing people and some really good resources. So I, we're coming in with a lot of excitement. We know that um, good days are ahead. Mm, that's so cool. What a great story. Well, we've never had a DS on the show, and I'm so I'm just wondering if you could kind of explain it in a nutshell, like what a DS does. I know you haven't been doing that for very long, um, but I'm just curious if you could kind of give us some insight into what that looks like. Yeah, well, I'll go. I've been going back to manual uh, paragraph 22.2 over and over and over again. And it says, uh, and early on in our denomination's history, as the church began to expand, um, our leaders quickly recognized that a- another layer of leadership was required in order to uh, facilitate um, and accommodate all this growth. Mm. And so Emmanuel 22.2 says, uh, we are agreed on the necessity of a superintendency that shall complement and assist the local church Mm. in the fulfilling of its mission and objectives. So the role of the superintendent is not to uh, necessarily like oversee as some kind of like watchdog. And it's not that it's the entire job of a superintendent is to complement and assist the local church Mm. in fulfilling 
its mission, not not my agenda, not even the denomination's agenda, but whatever the mission of the local church is and its objectives, my role is to help help them with that, to serve. Yeah. We don't have a denomination, we don't have a district without the local church. Local church is, is where it's at. And that's kind of why, you know, I'm kind of bummed out in some ways that we're leaving uh, the local pastorate because we love it um, and we believe in it. But uh, that that is the, the role, to, to assist, complement and assist the local church in the fulfilling of its mission and objectives. And then uh, paragraph 22.2 uh, goes on to say, the superintendency shall build morale, provide motivation, supply management and method assistance, and organize and encourage organization of new churches and missions everywhere. So the way it was explained to me is that the DS is like the CMO of the district, the chief morale officer, <laughs> the chief motivational officer, the chief management and method officer, and the chief missions officer. Mm. So in a practical sense, uh, what I'm trying to do is make sure that we have um, healthy pastors because healthy churches are, are led by healthy pastors. We have healthy pastors, we have healthy churches, um, and that we're also planting new churches and, and new works. And when when people lose morale, when they lose their motivation, it's my job to help bring that up again, um, bring some unity to the district, remind us this is what we're here to do. So there's definitely a motivational or inspirational role, I think, uh, that the DS should be playing. Um, and also management and methods. Sometimes uh, we're just kind of stuck and we've tried everything that we know, but that doesn't mean that, that we've tried everything there is to know. Yeah. Uh, we've just kind of run out of our own, uh, you know, to the limits of our own knowledge. So uh, bringing in um, training, resourcing pastors and churches, uh, that's that's part of what I what I do. And And I think for many of our English churches, we have lost the impetus to plant uh, new churches. Mm. And sometimes we're so busy kind of fixing up our own churches that we forget that probably the most effective uh, evangelistic method known to humanity is the planting of new churches. Mm. And I think our churches should be reproducing, having babies, lots of ways to do that. And uh, and we look forward to that, to, to getting to, to beginning a a movement of planting churches in the NorCal district. Our Spanish churches have been planting like crazy over the past um, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and right now, more than 30 of our churches on the NorCal district, out of like 75 or so, more than 30 of them are, are uh, Spanish-speaking. Mm -hmm. So they have been planting a lot, but the English churches have not. So we need to, and it's not, the district does not plant churches. Um, churches plant churches. Right. So how do you help churches uh, find new missional life? What is their what is their highest leverage opportunity to create new missional life? That's, that's what we want to do. Kind of unpack that for me a little bit. What is it about um, a church planting a church that you feel like is so positive, even when that the mother church, let's say, um, doesn't feel like they've arrived or are maybe in the best place to plant a church? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think when um, there's a difference between planting a church and turning around a church, when you turn around a church um, or you're just trying to grow your existing church, you have a lot of history, things that you need to deal with, people that have been doing things a certain way for a long time. It, it takes a while to kind of shift that culture. Mm. 
and keep everybody. You know, and you can't always keep everybody, but but you want to bring people along with you. Um, but when you when you plant a new church, you're starting with a blank slate, and you can set the culture from the beginning. Mm. And I think that's a wonderful uh, opportunity. So there's a certain nimbleness um, that comes with being a, a church plant. Um, secondly, that when you plant a church, you can you can move the church, you can move it physically closer to the people. Right. So you know, if I were thinking about a city. I would much rather see uh, 10 churches of 100 than to see one church of 1,000. Mm. And I would love to see those churches embedded um, deeply in the neighborhoods of where they live. And so a new church plan allows you to do that. Mm. I think um, sometimes in, a, in an existing church, there's not enough leadership spaces for people, just not enough roles. You know? And there's people that are leadership ready and, and hungry and they're ready to go and allowing them to launch out on their own, I think provides, um, that opportunity. And the, and one thing I I think I'm, I really want to stress is that for us to innovate as a, as a church, as a denomination, we have to be willing to fail. Church plants don't all make it. Uh, some of them fail, but you learn something from that failure. And I I think that we need to be willing to, to do that. So there's just something about um, birthing something new that energizes, I think, a whole congregation. Hmm. And our church, Trinity, was uh, preparing to do that by doing this merger, by sending people over. That was a, a transitional step to, to getting ready to plant. Our church has been around for you know 90 years, if you count all the way back to the early days uh, when the, the members of uh, LA First came out and started working with the Chinese population. And we still have not birthed the church. We've never planted a church. And, um, you know, when I, I, I let people know that, I say, we've got to have some babies at some point. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's kind of captured people's imagination. And we've we started to make moves in that direction. And it may not be another English church. It could be multicultural churches. That's, that's fine. Yeah. But uh, I don't think a church has fully grown up until it has planted a church that has then planted another church. So once you're into the third generation, I think you've really turned a corner. Mm. Um, so yeah, those are some of my thoughts on, on church planting. Yeah, that's great. Um, what Would you have any advice maybe for a young pastor who isn't sure how or when to interact with their DS? If you could kind of coach them through cultivating that relationship, what would you say to them? Yeah. Um, so the DS... Uh, just like a local pastor, uh, we often have a lot of different things in our mind. We're we're trying to advance several things at once, and uh, and just like a local pastor, there, there's always more work to be done than than we can get to in one day. So, mm. anytime you go to a DS or to a, a leader and say, "How can I help?" you will automatically get <laughs> jump to the front of the line uh, in terms of. Uh, uh, that that person's time. Mm. So, I, I you know we want to. There are so many amazing things that I think God wants to do in the North Hill District. Um, and sometimes our our younger clergy, for whatever reason, maybe they they don't have confidence in their skills. Maybe the door has never been open to them. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, are not always uh, stepping up and being engaged. It's not to say that. It, I guess it depends on on the leader, but. 
uh, in my mind, I mean, I, I would love that. I welcome that. One of the first things that I did as Diaz was set up a meeting with the young clergy on the district mm. because um, not too long ago, I was a young clergy. Yeah. Uh, I just so appreciated when I had mentors um, and opportunities to learn and to, to get in there. So mm. I would say if you if you have an open door to your DS um, and, and he or she has offered that to you, just jump in there. You know, when my kids are in school, I encourage them to stick around after class and ask the teacher questions, be the first to raise your hand, you know, like just be engaged. Um, it's as simple as, as that a lot of the times, just saying I'm here and I want to be engaged. And uh, as a DS, I love, love to hear that. Mm. Um, so there are tons of uh, committees um, and uh, different decision-making bodies. There's the SDMI, there's the NMI, there's the uh, uh, DAB, there's the Board of Ministry, there's all these different uh, groups. Mm. And what I would suggest is that if, even if you don't are not on those any of those uh, committees or boards, ask if you could attend. Just say, do you mind if I just come in as a, as an observer? I'm just trying to learn, you know. Mm. So just being seen and and uh, asking questions, just staying engaged, um, and then uh, work with your DS to find a role on the district outside of your context, uh, because there's a there's a micro context that we're involved in a lot, but there's also a bigger picture. There's also a, a macro context. Yeah. So uh, I would just say, um, be ready to uh, offer your gifts to the, to the capital C church. Mm. Um, and uh, just know that there's a seat at the table uh, for you. You may not, um, you may have to kind of wrestle your way in there a little bit, kind of if, uh, it is not immediately apparent to you, yeah. but um, God has put a, ta- a, a seat at the table, mm. whether or not the powers that be have recognized that or yet, uh, recognize that or, or not, but it's there. You know? Yeah. So a lot of it, I think, is just raising your hand and saying, um, I- I'd like to help. Mm. I think that's great advice. I like that a lot. Is there anything else that you want to touch on that we haven't uh, talked about? Um, I've been, uh, reflecting a lot on the parable of the talents mm. because I, like, as I said, we, we were quite happy where we were. I was trying to encourage our staff at a, at a recent staff retreat. Um, and so I was, we were reading from the parable of the talents and in, internally I'd been wrestling with whether to take this call to be the DS. Yeah. And, uh, and just when I got to those words, you know, that the servant who returns the five that the master, five talents that he had been given and then returned another five. Mm. And then the master says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge over many things. And when I said that, I just started weeping, you know, mm. in front of our team because I realized that that verse was for me and helped me to understand what God was doing that I've been, I've tried to be faithful with the few things that we've had at Trinity Mm. and then to see the Lord give me an opportunity to now help many churches. But it was the line after that that really got to me because right after that, then the Lord says, 
common share in your master's happiness. Mm. And I just want to say that um, ministry can be discouraging. It can be lonely. It's hard work. Yeah. And sometimes uh, it can it's painful. Uh, it can be isolating. Uh, but as we continue to be faithful with the few things that God has given us, he will put us in charge over many things, mm. more and more things. And and we will experience God's pleasure and joy in that. We will share in his happiness because those many things are not buildings and things like that. Those many things are, are people. Mm. And that's and, and I think that, that God is overjoyed at seeing us devote our lives to loving people and loving them into the kingdom and discipling them to maturity. That's what matters to our Heavenly Father. Yeah. So I would just say to anyone who is um, in any kind of position of influence or leadership in the church, keep, keep doing what you're doing and don't give up. Mm. And when the Lord opens up an opportunity for you to um, step into a a higher sphere of influence, a wider sphere of influence. Um, don't be quick to say no, because mm. I almost said no. <laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm glad now that I didn't. Um, so it's it's not something that should be driven by our personal ambition or anything like that. Mm. Um, but I, I do believe that. When we're faithful with a few things, the Lord puts us in charge of more things and that we experience God's pleasure in that. And not to not to back away from that, but consider that part of our reward for our faithfulness. Mm. So the last question I ask everybody is, what inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene and what is it that's keeping you here? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me just say that um, I didn't know what a Nazarene was. 14 years ago. Right. And when I um, started, and, and our church was kind of on the fringes. Our, our pastor was not super um, engaged. Uh, by, he didn't go to like district assemblies uh, often. And um, our church, there's a large contingent of our church that went through a period, uh, a very legalistic period in our denomination's history. And it really turned them off, you know, when, when things were about what you can't do as opposed to what we're actually for. Sure. Uh, and and so that left a bad taste in their mouths. And there's still a, some people in the church that just, they love the church. They love coming. They're very involved. They're serving. They're giving. But they just will not become members because mm-hmm. there's something about being a Nazarene that for them has a negative connotation to it. Mm. Um, and so because of that, for the first half of my time at Trinity, I didn't really go to district assembly. I didn't really know. And once I became a lead pastor, then I then I thought, you know what, I, I think I'm supposed to go to these things. And so I started going to assemblies and getting involved. But it's very hard as a person of color sometimes mm. to um, find a place at the table within our denomination. And and so it was difficult for me to really kind of engage. Um, but a couple of years ago, I spoke at um, a preaching conference at, uh, at NTS, uh, Nazarene Theological Seminary. And suddenly I was kind of thrown into... Um, a whole different sphere of people within our denomination who were incredibly welcoming and affirming and engaging. And they gave me plenty of space to be able mm. to ask questions and be involved. And I started to, to get involved in different committees and 
uh, go to uh, speak in different places. And, and, and I tell you what keeps me in the Church of the Nazarene, Brit, it's that over the past few years, especially, I have just met so many uh, godly, um, gifted men and women who are, to me, examples of Christ-likeness, um, of holiness, mm. and sacrifice. And I just think, man, if that's what a Nazarene is, that I want to be one. Mm. You know? and, I, and I'm happy to carry this banner. When Nazarenes are at their best, man, there's no place I'd rather be. This is a good tribe to be a part of. Mm. Um, and it's, it's can, we, can we all rise to um, the very best of, who of our understanding of what it means to be a faithful Christ follower? I loved the resolutions that were passed at, at um, General Assembly, and I feel that they, they represent the best of who we're striving to be. Mm. And I feel like the conversation is always being advanced. Yeah. And so what you may see in your local context may be just one tiny sliver of what God is doing in the denomination as a whole. But when you, when you start to look at the big picture, where I know we're not perfect, no, no family is, but when you look at the very best of who we're striving to be, that's inspiring. And honestly, the, the more that I see the hearts of our, of our top leaders, mm. the, the men and women who have been tasked with shaping and guiding us as a people, um, the more, the more, the prouder I feel. Yeah. And I really, I really believe that. Mm. And, uh, and so it's ultimately, it's the examples of Christ, uh, that I've seen in our, in our leadership that keep, um, keep me inspired. You know, I, I love being a Nazarene because of that. Oh, that's great. Um, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you and just ask you a question, um, where could they reach you? Well, I think the easiest way, I, I, I'm on email a lot, um, so you can, uh, they could email me at alberthung at norcal.org, mm-hmm. um, alberthung at norcal.org, um, or they can friend me on Facebook, uh, it's uh, Albert W. Hung is, uh, is the um, uh, address, just put that at the end of facebook.com slash Hung, and you'll be able to find me there. That's awesome. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on the show. Yeah, it's awesome, Britt. I love this uh, podcast. love what you're doing. Um, it's, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm.